I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Building Healthy Bug Populations for Better No-Till Crops, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Mike Bredesen is a research scientist with the Ecdysis Foundation, where he studies the interdependence of plants and insects alongside innovative farmers who are seeking to create healthy soils while growing resilient and profitable crops. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, I caught up with Mike at the 2020 National No-Tillage Conference just after he gave a talk on some ecdysis findings about insecticidal seed treatments and what becomes of them after planting. He'll share some of his findings about how neonicotinoids are metabolized, as well as background info on the ecdysis foundation and how they're working with farmers to develop strong ecological systems that will stand this test of time. Here's Mike. My name is Mike Bredesen and I'm a research agroecologist with Ecdysis Foundation. And I grew up as a farm kid, you know, very, very conventional farm, South Central Minnesota. And I really, that experience made me realize that I wanted nothing to do with agriculture at the time, which is sort of wild considering where I am now. But so I went off to college and I was bound oh. and determined <laughs> to become a chiropractor <laughs> until the summer where I took a lab, what I thought was gonna be a laboratory you know, good research experience job with John Lundgren. But after the first week on the job with Dr. Lundgren and his, you know, incredible team of people at the USDA, you know, we were going out into the field. And even though I had grown up my entire life surrounded by agriculture, I was a farm kid, FFA, 4-H and everything. I had never taken the time or had the excuse to get out and just get down on my hands and knees, peel back the topsoil, and just opened my eyes to what I thought was the most amazing thing ever, which was the wars being fought between organisms on the soil surface, below the soil surface, and not just the wars, but also the, the mutualisms, the teamwork happening. And that summer changed everything for me. I realized that agriculture could be something totally different than what I was used to growing up, and I kind of wanted to be a part of it. I was surrounded by people that cared about agriculture, cared about natural resources, and spoke the same language that I did as a farm kid growing up. So a couple summers with Dr. Lundgren, he decided, hey, Mike, you want to you wanna do a master's degree with me here at the USDA? I said, heck yeah, uh, why not? And at the conclusion of my master's degree is sort of where it was, it was known that if we were going to do the most impactful research possible, the place to do that research was not going to be with the USDA anymore, at the USDA or at, even at a university. And for where we were going to have the most freedom and most impact to work with farmers directly, that was going to be if, if we were out on our own. And that's where John really started the pioneering, you know, 
nonprofit Dices. And ever since then, five or six years it's been now, uh, since then I, I went through and did my PhD uh, through South Dakota State University, but doing all my work with Ecdysis Foundation with John. Um, just had an, an incredible experience there. So that's where I am today. I graduated with my doctorate and John decided that I was worthwhile to keep around. So I'm still with the company and we're doing, uh, we're doing some really great research, working directly with the true innovative farmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, how do you go about partnering with farmers for your research? Yeah. Everything that we do depends on establishing a trusting relationship with producers that let us come onto their farms and do something wild, you know, Mm -hmm. or maybe they're doing something wild on their farms and they trust us to come on and and put the numbers to it, you know, because they think that we're going to, they know that we're going to do the honest and the, and a good job of documenting the wonderful things happening on the most innovative and regenerative farms and really who we find you know, the, the farmers that we find and that are willing to do this, this research, it isn't difficult for us to find them. Oftentimes they come out and they, they search us out. You know, we can be at a meeting like this and, and a farmer's doing something totally off the wall, completely innovative, and they know it's working, they see it's working, but they don't necessarily know why it's working, how it's working. So really that's where we come in. I mean, these folks will approach us we can come to their place. We can get a good study going on. But yeah, definitely finding finding willing participants to do research is, is not an issue. After all, why would a person not want to research done on their own land? You know, I, I feel like that would give them the leg up. Some of the farms that we work with are some of the most studied farms in the country. And that can really help them. The data that we collect from their farms can really drive decisions for them in the long term you know, in the short term and in the long term, how can they become even more regenerative, more innovative? So finding people to to do research with is no trick. Can you give any examples of some of the wild things that people are doing that you're you're studying? Yeah, it's um, many that stick out to me early on in my career as with Ecdysis and with John. Some of them that stick out to me are, I couldn't believe that I would go to a farm and a producer would be so passionate about maintaining a healthy population of natural enemies about beneficial insects that they would take you know bits of their land out of production and they thought it was you know more than worthwhile to plant diverse native species because they felt like it was just this remarkably value added piece of their land they wanted the beneficial insects to spill over into their agricultural land so that, now it seems like a sort of second nature but at the time I just couldn't believe it, you know, that that someone would think that using natural processes to manage their farmland would be so valuable as to shape their whole production scheme around these natural processes and try to work with Mother Nature and, and her regulatory framework. So instead of fighting it, designing their agricultural system in a way that harnesses those extremely powerful natural devices. So you guys do a lot of research on bugs. Mm-hmm. Obviously, John, Dr. Lundgren is an entomologist, so yeah. that's naturally a, yeah. a, a focus for him. That's where our true hearts lies in the bug world, yeah. Okay, yeah. But you also bring in studies on tillage versus no-till and cover crops and things like that. Can you just talk about maybe what the balance is? Right, so as researchers, agricultural ecosystems and, and ecosystem, natural ecosystems, 
they're so remarkably complex that it, it takes a you know a team of different uh, of researchers with different specialties to even begin to scratch the surface as to what's happening in these systems. We believe that we can use our forte, our, our trained you know knowledge of entomology to sort of start the research process on these farms. But we fully know that we're going to have to recruit other other fields of, of research, soil biologists, microbiologists, soil physicists, and we're even getting into the realm of economists. Uh, we're finding that they're a, a completely invaluable part of a, of a proper research study and a research team. Um, it has to happen. Things that we do um, on farm, we can talk about being ecologically sound and, and conserving natural resources all day, but when you're getting really serious and want to expand these practices on a, a wide landscape, you know, if you're going to convince a lot of farmers, the economics have to pan out as well. Absolutely. So, you know, that's our forte. Every scientist should have something that they're really good at that they can contribute to a study. We happen to be really great at collecting, identifying, and curating insect communities. And we're proud of that. And we're also really proud of our ability to, to partner with other groups when we know that there's gaps in a research project that need to get filled. And I think it's we're just at the tip of the iceberg. I mentioned some of the other professions that we try and partner with, but you know it won't be long until you start to see um, sociologists, mental health experts partnering on some of these research papers in, into regenerative agriculture because it doesn't stop. Regenerative agriculture doesn't stop at the field edge. It totally impacts the economics of that farmer and the mental health and, and physical health and well-being of, of the farmer that's driving that relationship between themselves and the land and the things that they produce and then and the end uh, consumer. It's a, yeah, it's a system, right? It's not just one component. We need to study the system. Right. And so are you guys looking at nutrient density and how that plays into all of this as well? Yeah, we, it's something that we're... <laughs> We're getting into, I was just speaking with a farmer and it totally depends who you talk to. Some guys, they'll carry around their bricks meter in their pocket, you know, and go and, and squeeze some juice. And, and some folks are really identifying, you know, correlating that, you know, nutrient density does remarkable things as far as, you know, resisting diseases, resisting pests, improving the health of animals, including humans that might be consuming those products after they're harvested. And to tell you the truth, we have, we would love to do more research on how the nutrient density of an agricultural product, a good uh, plant that's growing, affects the relationship between the plant and beneficial insects and also themselves and herbivores and pests. Stay tuned. <laughs> there's, there's so much out there right now. We've got a, just an incredible smattering of projects that we're involved in right now. And that's not one of them. But it's something that we talk about on a regular basis, and I hope that we can get into it soon. So talking about insects, Fine. for a long time, I'd say, you know, in agriculture, insects have basically been the enemy, right? They're right, yeah. And so we're trying to turn a corner <laughs> and see that that's not always the case. So does the Ecdysis Foundation have a sort of unifying message about insects and the farm and what that relationship can look like? Yeah, absolutely. What we find time and time again are that insects and the diversity of insects that are being supported on a farm 
is an incredible indicator that's really helpful and visual for farmers that correlates really highly with the health of that ecosystem. When you have a diverse and abundant community of insects, not just natural enemies and predators, and not just pollinators, but a system is not healthy until you have, of course, predators and pollinators, but you need herbivores. You need, quote unquote, pests, things that consume plant tissue. Those are a vital component to a healthy ecosystem. And in fact, you can't maintain a, a sustainable population of beneficial insects without having some of those herbivores for the beneficial insects to consume and remain as sort of this, this army of protectors of your agricultural land. So, and it's not just, you know, the pest management. People think insects automatically you go and the mind goes to insects eat plants. Right. Well, yeah, there, there's, there's plenty of, of species of insects that are herbivores. But what we, what we don't think of are all the insects that are doing other incredible things vital to the health of your soil and the health of your ecosystem, such as consuming and devouring weed seeds, vitally important, a function of the insect community. And also within the soil, so that, that sort of this black box you know, we're only just starting to realize what's happening below the soil surface. We've been pretty good at identifying what's going on above, but it's just hard to tell what's going on below the soil surface. But insects and other non-insect arthropods, mites and calimbola and all these sort of weird, creepy, crawly things, some of which don't, we don't have, have names for yet, they are literally changing the physical properties of soil as they mill about, as, the, as they're consuming and changing dead plant matter. They're eating dead plant matter in the soil, bacteria, fungi, and pooping out stable soil aggregates on the way out. The insect community and other arthropods, man, if you go out on your farm and you are seeing more life that has more than six legs, you know, more than four legs or less than two legs, you should be a happy camper because that means you're, you're creating an environment that allows those species, those animals, to perform the functions that they were evolved to do. And those functions are maintain a low but acceptable level of herbivores, you know, providing habitat for beneficial uh, predators and pollinators, and also having an environment where those nutrient recyclers and soil architects can do the job that they want to do. Farmers talk about earthworms all the time. It sounds right. like you're saying the exact same thing about a lot of these. Absolutely. Yep, earthworms, they get all the, yeah, they get, they get, they get all the shine, right? <laughs> and they, they are remarkable. They, they're these charismatic, wonderful things. You can dig up a, a spadeful of soil and see them there. And they're a wonderful indicator of soil health. So many of these soil organisms, soil arthropods, some of them are insects. Some of our, some of them are other crazy, crazy animals down there too that sort of look like insects, but they aren't. Most of them are, you know, smaller than the eye can see. But they're animals nonetheless, and they're, they're doing these fantastic processes. It's yeah. just, it's so cool to see. Everyone should get a dissecting microscope and just sift through some of their soil. You get a good idea with where you sit on the, the, the soil health spectrum. We'll get back to my conversation with Mike in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. 
from many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Mike Bredesen as he talks about why plants need herbivorous bugs. And if we can back up for a second, you said we need uh, the herbivore. Absolutely. Just to be clear, is that because we're feeding the predator insects and we want that entire ecosystem. Right. Yes. So that's part of it. You know, herbivores in a natural system, herbivores, we think pests automatically. The only thing that could possibly be happening happening on my farmland uh, when there's an herbivore there is, you know, a decrease in yield. Those plants are, you know, putting forth their energy, um, gathering nutrients for them to just go straight into an herbivore. That doesn't seem to make much sense. But remarkably, when when an herbivore, so we're getting into some more nitty-gritty science here, it's healthy and right, and plants have evolved to put up with a small amount of herbivory. It can be a very good thing for a crop plant, for any type of plant. And what a, a small amount of herbivory does is it induces certain pathways within a plant, certain um, pathways that might help to defend against other types of attack, not only just insect pests but other diseases as well and when it when an herbivore is uh is nibbling on your crop plant at a low level we're not we're not talking about a pest outbreak here but a maintained small number of of plant feeders it's been shown that the plant will take some of the carbon that it's fixing from the sun and feed the microbes around its root system even more than than it would if there was no herbivore pressure at all Right. So that's sort of telling us as scientists and as farmers that this the system is so intricate when when a plant senses that there is some sort of feeding, it doesn't go automatically to induce its own defenses. It goes even further in that it recruits an army of microbes within the soil because that's how important that the whole entire system is like the, the plants can't do it on their own. They need to feed something else which is sort of a give and take, you know, and, and that herbivory is, is crazy important to maintain beneficial predator populations from year to year, but also just for general plant health. It's not a bad thing to have a low amount of herbivory happening in your fields. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like I've heard Chris Nichols talk about this in terms of cows grazing on, yeah. on the plants. Right. That it creates that same stimulus. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely can. Okay. Interesting. What is the ecdysis stance on traits in corn, for instance? Are you strictly non-GMO? Right. So all of us at ecdysis, we have our own, our own opinions on all these different uh, items. Dr. Langer might have a different opinion. Some of the other scientists that will have differing opinions. Um, here's sort of how I feel about it. I've done enough work uh, looking at neurotoxic pesticides, you know, neonicotinoids, pyrethroids, organophosphates, to know that given the choice between a synthetic pesticide and a traits, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna choose the traits. You know, I'm going to do that. That being said, I know that there are innovative farmers out there. The best farmers are designing their 
agricultural ecosystems in a way where they don't need either. But if you're giving me a one-to-one choice, I, I would I would choose the traits. Yeah. But with the knowledge that I'm on the pathway of eliminating both. Okay. Yeah. So you just gave a very well attended, I'd say, standing room only talk at the National No Tillage Conference um, on. Uh, seed treatments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you kind of rocked some people's worlds. Do you mind sharing that? Sure. When we treat our crop seeds with a neonicotinoid pesticide and we insert that seed into the ground, water comes into contact with it. That pesticide is dissolved into the soil water and that's how it enters the plant roots within the plant. And this process is still, there's a lot of question marks surrounding how it actually happens within the plant. All we know is it does happen. Once inside the plant, that neonicotinoid pesticide is metabolized into a completely different, but also toxic pesticide. So in the case of my own research, seeds are treated with a thiamethoxam. It's the, a type of neonicotinoid. Once it enters the plant, it's converted. It's a very small molecular change, but it's converted into a different type of neonicotinoid called clothianidin. And this is really important, you know, for farmers, researchers, and people advising, advising farmers to know is that just because we, we, we place one type of chemical onto a seed and, and it enters the plant, if, if we're looking for that chemical, we're trying to figure out how long it persists in the plant, how long it persists in the environment, and all we're doing is looking for that parent molecule, we're, missing, we're completely missing the picture because of that breakdown from chemical A that we treat to seeds into chemical B, which happens in the plant. And that chemical B, that equally, if not more toxic compound, can persist much longer into the growing season and have major implications for say pollinators that are coming to visit crops during during a flowering period or even when we're harvesting these crops for animal or human consumption if we're only looking for that treated that that compound that we treated crops with we're perhaps missing even a, a, a dangerous piece of the puzzle and that is that some of these additional metabolites we call them uh, the, the parent molecules metabolized into an additional compound. If we're not looking for them, um, we could be feeding them, harvesting them, and subjecting our beneficial insects to them uh, during times of the year that are sensitive um, and really times where we want to be protecting those critters against any sort of toxicity. Um, and it goes a step further. You know, once these pesticides are metabolized into different compounds, uh, either through the plant or through microbes, it changes how long they can persist in a soil. And again, so if we're looking for how long a certain pesticide persists, the one that we we apply into the agroecosystem, that might be gone or undetectable after a certain amount of time. But if we're we're looking at the additional breakdown components, those might be around for many months to many years. So then we run into a situation where we can even be accumulating them within our agricultural fields and, and, and off sites as well, you know, surface ground waters, natural habitats. Um, so it's something that a person really needs to be aware of when making a decision to use a, a, a pesticide is that um, you need to know that, that uh, 
it doesn't always stay where we put it. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, and we're not always looking for what we think we're looking for then. Absolutely. Yeah, and so this would help explain some of the disparity in, in the messaging that's out there about seed treatments and, yeah. and uh, pesticides. Because, I mean, the companies that make these, they do tons of research. Right, right? absolutely, yeah. Uh, it seems that they're safe, right? right? Um, so, I mean, how how is it that you guys are doing such different research that they're not looking at those things yeah yeah i i do agree that that um you know a company that might that might be creating uh one of these one of these tools one of these compounds um they do research the heck out of it but i also do believe that they can control the the kind and the amount of information that comes out of that research as well we're filling the knowledge gaps um that's part of that's part of what we want to do at ecdysis um, where's the truth you know, behind the products? Uh, wh- what are we doing uh, to the agroecosystem, to the to the beneficial insect community when we do use them? And then more importantly, how are the most regenerative, innovative farmers getting by without having to use them at all? And really that's the direction we like to go in. We like to work with the innovators. You know, we're not reinventing the wheel at Ecdysis. Often, you know, most often, the farmer is the one that's creating something remarkable. We're coming in and and putting the numbers on it, and then part of our job is then to help disseminate that blueprint, that information to a wider audience, so we can change more acres more quickly. Mm-hmm. To that end, I have to say, a lot of your papers are extremely academic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and absolutely, people have their their issues with peer-reviewed science, but we at Ecdysis, we, the, the numbers that we put out, we so firmly believe has to be peer-reviewed. You know, we need to hold ourselves to the highest standard. And to us, the highest standard is the information that we receive on these farms. It needs to be replicated. It needs to be sound information. We need to be able to, to put our careers on the line and trust the information. And to do that, we can ensure that it's good sound information by having it go through the academic peer-reviewed process and and land this information for posterity's sake into academic journals. But the job, you know, for us doesn't end end there. Um, there's a, an incredible amount of wonderful information that's been buried in academic journals um, because a researcher. Um, they did wonderful work, but they weren't incentivized to get that information to a broader audience, the general public that can really put it to use. All right. But that's part of Ecdysis's mission is to go beyond the research and, and, and tie it into it, doing as much, as much, as frequent, as many different kinds of of uh, outreach as we can do. Yeah, so my final question then is, how are you getting that information out to producers? Yeah, it's, um, it's a great question. And we're, we're trying to develop that. We're hoping to get more people on, hire more people on that are better at that than we are. And we, get, you know, we can recognize our limitations. We're good at doing the research. We're good at identifying the bugs. Doesn't necessarily mean we're good at speaking to the people. And there's a lot of better people for that position. Um, than us, so we need we need a, a marketer. We need social media people, and we're doing our best to try and improve at that. Um, but the most success that we've had are, are 
writing up our findings in, and putting it out there in uh, local newspapers, farmer magazines, um, getting on podcasts, hopefully maybe starting our own podcast, uh, looking at uh, how do people receive their information, videos. That's something for this next generation of people that are going to help us uh, disseminate this information. But, you know, by and large, the greatest impact that we see getting the information out there is by attending and speaking at as many field days and soil health events as we can get. That creates this relationship with producers. Uh, it, it helps them to know who we are. We're real people doing real research and we have a real connection with them and we want them to be successful. And with the, without that relationship building, um, you know, most of this would, would be for naught. Uh, we need to be out there in front of people creating that relationship so that our research can go further. Well, I know you've made a great contribution here at the National Notillage Conference already. And Thank you. Really excited to have you here. So thanks so much. Again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks to Mike Bredesen and the Ecdysis Foundation for this talk. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.